Hey, everyone. Hi. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Alice. Hey, Greg, what are you doing here? Hey, what do you mean? What I, Allison, where, did you, where did you come from, Greg? I came from the world of childish, and I just want to make sure that your listeners know that you're just as wonderful on the on the other podcast you do. What if they don't have kids? Don't need them. You don't need them. <laughs> A lot of our listeners actually tell us they don't have kids. We talk about sex. We and talk about all sorts and, of dirty stuff, yeah. but also parenting stuff. Yeah. So check out Childish new episodes every Wednesday wherever you listen to podcasts. everyone. Hi. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Allison Rosen is your new best friend. I'm sitting here in the pod cabin with Tony Thaxton. Hello. Hello. My DIY termite fix is working. Yeah? Yeah. They've gone bye-bye? They see. I, it, they seem to have decided that I'm a formidable opponent and they're gone. Now, fast forward to this podcast studio <laughs> crumbling around us. But for now... All right. I have saved quite a bundle by not bringing in an expert and just tackling it myself. Yeah. So I hope that's an inspiration to anyone out there who's deciding to neglect some kind of home homeowner duty. Yeah, yeah, could <laughs> inspire people to neglect duty. That's, that's right. The goal that's, of the show. If there's, I want people to feel less alone, mm-hmm. and I want them to be irresponsible. That's, that's my legacy. Um, but we're not alone here. We are also sitting here with writer and editor Adrienne Brodeur. She co-created the literary magazine Zoetrope with Francis Ford Coppola. She's the director of Aspen Words, which is a part of Aspen Institute. She's worked in book publishing um, for a while, and now she's written a beautiful memoir called Wild Game, My Mother, Her Lover, and Me. Hello. Welcome. Hi. Thanks for having me. I'm Excited to be here. I'm excited to have you on. I just have to tell the listeners, I've got to let them in on this. Um, you listened to a couple episodes of the Thursday show, which is the panel, which is a very different vibe than <laughs> this one. And you were understandably confused about how this was going to work. I was a little scared when I came in <laughs> that I wasn't going to quite fit into your usual scheme. <laughs> um, yeah. So that I reassured you that this is just... You don't have to figure anything out. You don't have to be hip and cool, even though I feel like you're cooler than you're giving yourself credit for. Are you wearing a swatch? I am wearing a swatch. I love it. Does that mean I'm cool? Yeah. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) I'm feeling very brave already now. Well, we've decided that Tony's kind of the arbiter of cool. Who decided this? (laughs) Me. I second it. Oh, okay. Okay. I'm in. So do you think swatches are cool? Uh, I, I don't have an issue with the swatch. That did That's not sound like a ringing well, endorsement. Well, I've just been them. thinking they're I'm cool. Not, but I'm, I'm not Are a, you not a timepiece man? No, I'm not. I'm not a TPM. <laughs> <laughs> okay, he is cool. Okay. So wait, did I say your last name right? You did. Because Adrian I'm Adrian Broder. Broder. Okay. Mm-hmm. Broder. I want you I want to go j- and that's just wrong. It's just Broder. Okay. So um, your book, it's a memoir, but it really reads like fiction. It is beautiful, it's poetic, it's evocative. It's very moving. Um, in it, your mother, who is sort of a larger-than-life figure, wakes you up when you're 14 um, at a moment when you were you kind of were having a fledgling romance of your own. Your life had 
you know, you had stuff going on. You were a 14 year old. Right. Your mom wakes you up to tell you this big secret, which is that this man who was a family friend, um, your, your stepfather's best friend had just kissed her. Mm-hmm. She had feelings for him. She, uh, needed your help in keeping it a secret. Yes. And you kind of at that moment let your own, individuation fall by the wayside, your own romance, your own all that, to become her confidant, to... You really kind of took an active role in their romance in that you covered for them, you provided opportunities for them to be alone together. Later, you, uh, your mother gets uh, blackmailed by someone and you came up with a ruse to... I mean, that was... I know, I still feel deep shame about that one. <laughs> Well, but it's it was very clever. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Clever. I was clever. Even thinking about it in hindsight, I'm thinking like, I cannot believe that I came up with that. Yeah. But yes, it was that night of my life. I mean, it really, it felt like I went to bed as a child in the land of childhood and as my mother's daughter. And, you know, the next day I was really immersed in this um, very fascinating adult world. And um you know, I was her confidant and best friend, exactly what you said. Mm-hmm. And when did you realize that there was something inappropriate about this? You know, we all only get one set of parents. Mm-hmm. And so your childhood is quite normalized in that way. And I really, I, it took me a long time to realize. I mean, and I, I think part of that is because you know, my parents were divorced. There were infidelities in that divorce. My mother's came from a family who, and her parents were divorced. There was actually a secret half sibling mm. from, you know, secret other family in that family, in that generation, I mean. And her mother had a very similar affair. So it's, it was kind of the world that I grew up in. And to some degree, it occurred to me that this was just the adult world. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the first times that I really, you know, had my first sort of mini and slightly shocking awakening was I was confiding in a a real, a 'er ne'er-do-well boyfriend of mine who was kind of a petty drug dealer and, you know, just this... The Hawaii guy. You had escaped Hawaii. I had escaped Hawaii and I was sort of telling him this story. And, you know, you can kind of practically picture him weighing some weed or something. (laughs) And he looks at me and he's just like, holy moly, are you kidding? Like, that's reprehensible. And I'm like you know, whoa, back up, back up. And I I was so confused by Mm -hmm. his reaction. Um, And I tried to explain sort of the paradigm with which I grew up seeing it, which was, you know, they were in fact, they didn't mean to fall in love, they just did. And they in fact, were doing the right thing, because instead of breaking two homes and running off together, which was also sort of the norm in my family, they were gonna, you know, stay true to these marriages. And so I had sort of made this a noble calling somehow in my mind. And it was really seeing this guy, just his eyes getting this big, going, wait, what? Mm -hmm. Um, And that, you know, and as life goes on, you know, it, it, it came slowly and then quickly, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you don't realize it all at once. Um, but I, I did think it was kind of normal. I definitely do have moments in my life where I think that people mirrored something to me or what to use less therapisty language, like said something to me that I wasn't ready to hear at the time. Yeah. And I look back and I think, oh God, that person was right. Uh-huh. They well, were right. Do you have an example of what you mean? Um, I, the, uh, 
the drummer so i used to play in a band okay many years ago oh, you're cool too <laughs> <laughs> no as we said before we start i've relinquished my coolness and i don't know that i really was ever really cool uh but i did play in a band years ago and um i had uh like hooked up with a friend the drummer was older than i, I was the youngest one in mm-hmm. the band and i had Mester hooked up with the drummer's friend who was talk about ne'er do well, like he was real ne'er do well. <laughs> and the, and I at that time of my life was in no position to turn out any attention from men. Like I was just so, I had no, no core. I was, uh, I had no self esteem. I just like any attention. I was like, yes, I'm going to follow this as far as it goes. <laughs> and the, um, our drummer didn't, he didn't want me to be involved with this guy. Yeah. Um, cause he was looking out for me oh. and he felt like it wasn't going to go well. And, um, I really resented his involvement in it. When I found out that he had said anything, I felt like I'm an adult. I can do what I want. I mean, it's like, right. you're not the boss of me. And he said, uh, the guy told me that the drummer said to him, she doesn't read signals from men. Right. And that was such an affront oh. to me, but it was true. true. It was yeah. so true. Like I took any, attention to mean that this person like genuinely likes me not re i didn't it's like i was so immature that i didn't understand that there can be flings there can be casual things there can be things that exist outside of relationships of course but i mean it it takes experiencing them yeah. those moments oh that sure breaks my heart <laughs> well i'm okay yeah now. i know Thank you, you. Are. <laughs> <laughs> but to go back to you so you um had this intense loyalty to your mother yes. and so when um hawaii boyfriend uh, express sympathy for you, you got very an- kind of angry and upset. Um, and that moment ver- very much comes alive in the book. Like I could, mm-hmm. I could feel it. Um, so when was the next time maybe that, that someone said something like that to you? And- you know, there were, there were small moments all along the way, probably. Um, the next moment where I had a real ping, you know, the <laughs> cherry pit against the wall of my subconscious was, um, <laughs> When my stepfather died, um, who was just a lovely person in my life, he was never really a father figure to me because I had a father, Mm -hmm. but he was a good friend and he was always kind and he'd been in my life. You know, they were married when I was eight and he died when I was a sophomore in college. So whatever that math is, but he was, he was part of my life for a long time. And when he died, um, Again, sort of not having been through any kind of depression before, I went through a very sort of mild depression, but I, I didn't know what this feeling was and why I felt. I felt so sad. I felt, and, and part of that's obviously normal, but guilty. Um, I felt terrible that I'd, you know, hidden something from him that I hadn't been kind. I mean, I'd been outwardly kind, but mm-hmm. I mean, here's the biggest problem with keeping a secret. It, it keeps you from being known, right? So it's it's this, I think what Jung called it, um, a psychic poison. Mm-hmm. So that it it's alienates you from your community because you can't, how do your friends really know you or your boyfriends or anyone because you're holding this huge part of yourself from them, you know, all the burden and everything else of it aside. So there was a real moment when when Charles died, my stepfather, that I just had this what, 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 and I've got to get back from this situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and you you called him Charles, which is not his real name, right? right? So that was a question I wanted to ask. You used your parents' real names mm-hmm. and your own real name, but you changed everyone else's names. Right. However, it's all like easily Googleable because everyone is well, a published everyone, author. <laughs> yeah. I mean, everyone, 
that was sort of my thinking when I wrote it is I, first of all, I, I changed the names to make the writing process easier for mm. me. Um, just because when I was thinking about my stepfather or something, I wanted to be as honest and it, it just, it was easier to have it one step removed, mm. uh, to make the more characters than having that actual person. I mean, it's a little bit hard to describe. I really, you know, I didn't know what to do when we were getting closer to the publication. I remember talking to my editor about it and she's like, look, you know, memoirs do it all sorts of ways. They can use all pseudonyms. They can, you know, you can keep some. And I knew I had to keep, I mean, Malabar. Am I really going to change Malabar? <laughs> and and the book was ultimately about the two of us. Um, so really, I decided to leave those other names as they were, not really with any thought that, you know, wink, wink, no mm -hmm. one would know who they were, but more with a thought of, you know, for the people who are most of most of the critical players in the book have died. But for the people who are their children or their nephews or their nieces, they can read this without actually being feeling called out into the world in mm -hmm. that very public way, I think. Um, you know, that was sort of my hope is just to give the, the sort of collateral a little space. Mm -hmm. Um and I, I don't know, I, I can honestly say, I don't really, I mean, maybe I'm <laughs> lacking curiosity, but I love reading. And when I read a memoir that has false names, I've never like Googled them to like try to, I don't know, unearth the truth in some deeper way, but mm -hmm. maybe that's just me. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think how I found out everyone's. I think I was Googling you and then that led me yeah. to, I was Googling you and that led me to some obits mm -hmm. and then I sort of started. Right. Um. Now, your mother has dementia now. Yes. But she gave you her blessing. She did. Book, when right? I about, you know, on some level, I've been thinking about this. And she knows I've been working on it in different ways, shapes and forms for years and years. And then when I mean, the game changer for me was having children, mm -hmm. of course, because if that doesn't require revelation and a new look at your life, I don't know what does it changes your relationship with your past and future. And I really... um realized I had to not try to deal with this in humor, which is how I'd done it in the past, that I, I needed to face it head on. And so I I did write to the kind of key people in the book, and I talked to my mom. And, um, you know, this was about four or five years ago, and I'm sure it wasn't like, woohoo, go for <laughs> it. <laughs> but I will say, you know, she, we've had an intense bond my whole life. And obviously, sometimes it's been very difficult, and we've been estranged. But um I think she understood that I needed to do it and, you know, gave me her support. She was a big chronicler of her own life. So she had lots of scrapbooks and photos and, you know, Lord knows recipes, recipe books. And it was, it was actually a really interesting process of kind of, you know, tying the meals that I remembered and wrote about in my journals to when some of those recipes were published and, you know, big mm -hmm. jigsaw puzzle of figuring out the timeline of your own life, which is surprisingly not easy to do. <laughs> right. Was it hard to get the objectivity needed to write this story? You know, I don't think anyone writes a memoir particularly objectively, but I feel like what you do need to do is sort of loosen your grip on your own narrative and be very open to other people's. Obviously, everyone who lived through this had a different experience of it. Um, so I can only tell my story. But I think one of the really incredible parts of doing it is that when you have to research someone else's life and dive as fully into it as I did my mother's, 
I mean, it's really hard not to develop a well of compassion for mm-hmm. every every character in the book because, you know, all of us have been through things. My mother's early life was so far more tragic than anything I've faced in my own life that it it really did make me think, okay, you know, I'm not saying that this makes it okay. And she made some terrible decisions involving me, but I get it, you know, I, and in some ways, you know, I admire that you could have lost a child, your, your husband could be sort of felled by strokes, this great love of your life, and still you're going to go for love. Like some part of me is like, wow, that's, you know, rather than curl up and, you know, I don't know, sit on your sofa forever. Mm -hmm. She, she kept going. So do you think keeping it from their spouses was the right decision? I mean, it certainly isn't what I would do. I, you know, I don't feel like I'm in the position, you know, it was a different generation. It's a different world. Um, I can't imagine that in my own life. And so, you know, this sort of righteous me would be like, no, no. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, it wasn't my choice. I don't know if that was too much of a dodge, but <laughs> no, that's fine. That's fine. I just, cur- I was just curious sort yeah. of what you think about that now. Well, I mean, you know, I don't remember what the word is for, but there's some presentism where you're not supposed to sort of, you know, like judge people of the past for this sort of present oh, right. day, um, how you would conduct yourself, whether that's, you know, I mean, think about the LGBT, you know, community mm-hmm. or something like that. I mean, it's such a different world. I can't imagine my mother ever wrapping her head around, you know, transgender or fluidity or anything else. And and yet, you know, we can't really judge them for right. that. Um that was a little bit of a leap, but I think, I think marriage in those days was slightly different and there were different reasons for getting married. I mean, women had fewer opportunities. Mm-hmm. I think there was more of, a, you know, a bit of a, you know, you've got to pick your mate based on the life you want and stuff, which I don't think we all have to think about in that same way today. Mm-hmm. Thank God. There's a piece of advice that I can't remember if your mother gave it to you or your mother's mother gave it to her, gave it to you, which is you marry your first husband for, to give you children and your second one to care for you in your old age. This is, is that right? my, this, I heard this bit of advice. This was my father repeating what his mother-in-law, okay. so my mother's mother, um, who my father, of whom my father was not fond. <laughs> um, she said something to that effect. Yes. Like you marry one man to have your children and another one to grow old with. Mm. Hmm. Um, there was a, a quote from the book that I wanted to bring up and then um, ask you about. When um, I'm trying to remember wh- at which moment it was. Okay, so this is when your husband's mother passes away. You say, um, I couldn't fathom the concept of being without a mother. It was as unimaginable to me as waking up without the sun. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a bit about that? Well, for better or for worse, you know, my mother has always been my person in life. I, I, I think probably because my parents divorced when I was very young and I had certain abandonment fears. Um, you know, I kind of clung to her, a little barnacle to rock. Mm-hmm. And, um, and on top of that, she obviously sort of craved and needed adoration. And, you know, I adored her. So I think in that way, you know, obviously I love other people as much or more, my husband, my children, all of that. But I, when I say she's my person, I mean, 
you know, when I wake up in the loop in the middle of the night, you know, having a conversation with someone, it's usually my mother. Um, and I just think our attachment or, you know, especially given that I didn't break that bond as a normal, you know, teenager would and go on to become more and more independent. Um, I did that much later in life. I just, I think our boundary issues had just made it seem so essential. And I think, you know, most people are deeply attached to their mothers. I, I you know, I think it's not uncommon, but I think mine is a little, a little messed up. <laughs> <laughs> and so how, where are you now with all of that? In terms of how I feel about my mother? in ter- Yeah. And in terms of um, boundary issues. Yeah. Well, you know, life steams on ahead, no matter what your plans are and how you're um, imagining you're going to arrange things and <laughs> not be so dependent. I mean, my mother's gravely ill now. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, our relationship is entirely different. And it's much, you know, I, I don't really even devote much thought to all this, you know, I mean, obviously, I've written about it, and I'm talking about it. But you know, when I'm with her now, that is not something we're discussing, or she's even capable of discussing now. And so it's really, um, you know, it's much more of a caregiving relationship. It's actually been very sweet in some ways. She's, you know, much more appreciative and, you know, loving. And um, I don't know, it's, it, you know, it's just it's such a different moment in our lives. Mm-hmm. You talk about there's a moment where she um, she asked, you're, you're trying to set a boundary with her and she's constantly <laughs> right. And she's not digging it. Yep. And, <laughs> um, that's how we cool people talk, right? Tony? Yeah. That's what we say. That's, right. that's what we used to say back when we were in band. Well, you're still on one, but, um, she's, uh, not respecting it. And she says to you, did it ever occur to you that I don't, I don't want to see you ever again. I don't want to be near you. What did um, she say? Oh gosh, now I've I've lost the line, but I know we were having a very very um huge argument that night and um I don't know about giving away spoilers, but I was I was in the process of untangling myself from part of this very strangely constructed family we'd made and she was not happy about that. And um, she'd done a few things. But yeah, she said something to the effect of, has it ever occurred to you that I don't want to be your neighbor or so close to you or something along those lines? Um, I should look it up and get the right line. But um, and it was one of those, you know, we all hear the insult so more much more strongly than we hear the compliment. Like you can have a performance evaluation where someone says, oh, my God, you're so, so, so good at your job. Mm, mm. But you're you were five minutes late last Thursday. And that's, that's the all thing you hear. Yeah. And it's the, you know, even though I can't apparently remember the line right now, <laughs> I swear that that line stuck with me for years. It was so painful. Mm-hmm. Um, and mostly because, you know, I felt in this way, like, hey, I, I gave you like 20 years of my life that were really <laughs> inappropriate to give you in the first place. And now you're sort of casting me off now that sort of your fairy tale is going this way. So it felt it felt really difficult. Mm-hmm. Does that one still go through your head? Apparently not, if I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, congrats. But maybe that might just be middle age. <laughs> I need to talk to you guys about a company that makes one of my very favorite products. I'm talking about Brooklinen. I sleep on Brooklinen sheets. They are my favorite 
sheets. I have one set. Uh, I own more than one set of sheets, but I only own one set of Brooklinen sheets. They are blue and white striped. If you follow me on social media, you've probably seen pictures of them. Uh, what I do is I sleep on them, take them off the bed, wash them, put them right back on. Uh, I'm not one of those, I switch it around kind of people. I've got one set of sheets that I'm in love with. I think that maybe that's one of my New Year's resolutions is to get another set because I love them so much. Why am I, why not, why not have multiples of them? Making your home beautiful is the ultimate form of self-care. You spend a third of your life in your sheets. Don't you want them to be insanely comfortable? This holiday season, it's time to gift the ones you love or yourself ding, 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 with something a little cozier like bedding, loungewear, towels, and more. Brooklyn is having their biggest sale yet this Black Friday through Cyber Monday. Brooklyn is home of the internet and Allison Rosen's favorite sheets. They've gotten over 50,000 five-star reviews and counting. Uh, they are the first direct-to-bedding company, meaning they work directly with manufacturers and directly with customers, no middleman, just a great product and service. Uh, and they've moved beyond the bedroom to have essentials for your bath. I want the full suite of Brooklyn and stuff. They've got stuff for your bathroom. They've got towels, shower. Ooh, I need a shower curtain. I'm getting too excited. Shower curtains, bath mats, ultra soft loungewear. I need all this stuff, you guys. Like softness, comfort, essentials to help you relax. Yes, yes, and yes. Brooklinen has it all. Brooklinen.com is having their biggest sale ever, and it's happening right now for Black Friday, Cyber Monday. Brooklinen is so confident in their product that all their sheets, comforters, and towels come with a lifetime warranty. The only way to get access to their biggest event ever and free shipping is to go to brooklinen.com. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com before December 3rd. And if you're just hearing this and it's post-Black Friday, Cyber Monday, you can still use the promo code BESTFRIEND at brooklinen.com for 10% off and free shipping anytime. Brooklinen, everything you need to live your most comfortable life. Okay. To go back to something we were talking about before, I mm. am astounded is too strong, but I'm surprised that she gave you her blessing to write about all of this. Um, blessing might be a strong word. I know I've seen that in print, so perhaps I did say it. I, I think she she understood that I needed to, and she understood the cost, you know, probably not emotionally, because she mm -hmm. wasn't someone who was very self-reflective. Um, but she, you know, she didn't say over my dead body and don't and stop. She right. was like, she accepted that it was going to happen and you know, and, and help me to the degree that she could. Right. I mean, I think that that is given how, so I'm trying to figure out why that's surprising to me. I think because there were so many secrets and she, it, in many moments of the book, didn't seem to put your best interest first. Right. Well, and I mean, some part of it might've been, you know, her becoming an older woman. She was in her eighties at the time. Um, you know, some part of it is, I think also, I mean, this might sound crazy, but she trusted me to know that I wasn't going to write a mommy dearest. I don't mm -hmm. feel that way about her. My whole desire in writing this book was to write a very nuanced and fair portrayal of a complicated relationship. And most people can see, you know, the love on every page too, whether they think it is deserved or should be there or not. 
Um, and I, so I think she knew that. And when I say she gave me information, I think she, you know, a lot of the information, she wasn't giving me, Hey, here's another secret. Tell them this. She was giving me like, this is, this is the story of my childhood. This is where I grew up in India. This, you know, like she just sort of gave me lots of, um, you know, material that just sort of sank into my consciousness that wasn't necessarily going on the page. It's mm-hmm. not really sort of autobiography in that way of every detail, but it, it helped me to, to understand the richness and fullness of who she was. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a necklace in the book, <laughs> there a very <is>. significant <laughs> necklace, uh, which is part of what a, a, a moment in the book, which just gutted me. I mean, I was mm-hmm. just like, Oh my God, can you talk a bit about the significance of this necklace? Yes. So, just as by background, um, as a person whose parents were divorced when she was very young, I was four or five. And every person I know whose parents are divorced when they're young children, no matter how miserably married they were, people have a secret desire for their parents to be together. Well, in my mom's case, this actually happened. So her parents had divorced when she was very young, and then they got back together. And so this necklace, which was this beautiful mogul era, you know, necklace from India, just, you know, huge gems and diamonds, and it's a collar, and it's just fabulous. She actually witnessed her father on bended knee, you know, proposing you know, to her very glamorous mother. And I, I can just imagine you know, what that... It's like a fairy tale. It's a fairy tale. And so somehow this necklace took on just, you know, mythic status in my mother's mind. And I think she was someone who conflated love and money and possessions and power and all sorts of things. But um, so she imagined um, the necklace to be of just incalculable value, which is really odd because my mother also studied art history and she would insist that it was unappraisable. And this is Harvard educated woman, like, we all know everything's appraisable. Mm -hmm. So it never quite made sense to me. But she was just, you know, it's museum quality, I should leave it to a museum. And she'd always sort of dangle it out, you know, if you're very good, I really shouldn't, but I will. And um, the scene that you're referring to is at one point in time, she, um, I mean, she had clearly a very hard time giving it to me. Um, She, her mother gave it to her as a college graduation present you know, sort of willingly, and she would just kind of, you know, hold it out and then just kind of retract it. And she wanted to have me wear it on my wedding. And I bought a dress that it would work for and everything else. And um, what happened is right before the wedding, um, Ben Souther's wife found out about the affair um, instead of leaving her, which was always the agreement. If anyone found out, they'd run off together. Um, Ben dropped my mother like a hot potato. And this wedding was the only thing that we all knew was going to bring them all back into the same room. So it it became more my mother's wedding than mine. Her dress was more important than mine, the whole thing. And I, I went into her bedroom. I'd been living in California at the time. And I came back east um, a few months before the wedding, just to, you know, final check on all details. And I saw the necklace for the first time. It was sort of opened in its little purple case on her bed. And um, and then she whipped out this fabric, this bolt of fabric, and was talking about the dress she was having designed. You and thought the necklace I, was sitting there to be me, handed to you. Yes, I thought it was there to be handed to me. Wedding. I thought we were there to talk about my dress. Right. Way. I mean, I really just like, I got it all so wrong. And so but she- But that's sort of, what uh, yes. would 
that's what should have happened. Yes, yes. indeed. <laughs> at, at one's wedding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, she sort of wrapped this fabric around herself and described the dress. And then she lifted the necklace and she said, and this will be the piece de resistance. And I just was like, <sighs> I know. And can I say, I have that feeling for me now. Mm-hmm. At the time, so everyone knows she's clutching I'm, her I'm heart. I'm clasping my chest. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh. um, and I, like, when I think back at my young self, I have that same feeling of, like, I cannot believe that. But at the time, you know, once again, in this warped world, I was like, oh, my God, of course she needs it. Like, this is her last possible chance at happiness, you know, and I, I can wear any old necklace. I'm mm. also, you know, fundamentally less attached to things than my mother and the necklace, you know, what, what its attachment was to me was like, my mother loved it so much and she was going to give it to me. Um, but you know, by the way, I, my mother is the most glamorous woman on earth and I could no sooner pull that necklace off. I don't know what I thought wearing it on my wedding. It would have been ridiculous. I probably would have just tipped over, um, (laughs) under the weight of it. But, um, yeah, so she wore it, but still it, not that I have to tell you about about your life, you lived it. <laughs> Go but for it. to me, it, the significance is it's huge. It's- she on not only did she not see that she had promised you something and then didn't deliver and instead took it for herself, it's that her main thought on your wedding day was about her. herself. Yes. Yeah. No. I mean, unquestionably, that is true. And you know, it is hard to think about. How much did your dad know about all your role in all of this? He didn't know anything until much, much later. I mean, I'm sure he learned much about it from the book. Um, My parents were, you know, this was a divorce that happened in the 70s. So divorce was different then, of course. And we saw him every other weekend. But, you know, he was a busy guy and he had a big career at the New Yorker magazine and was sort of chasing stories. And we moved to another state and we saw each other regularly and he was a very devoted and involved father. And yet, um, you know, we didn't have that kind of emotional openness with each other. I mean, I, and plus, you know, it was a secret I was keeping with my mother, who happened to be his ex-wife, mm-hmm. about an affair she was having. He was like the last person on earth I could have told about it. Right. And um, how does your brother fit into all of this? Because I know that when it happens in the book, suddenly there's this um, secret kinship between, or, or rather the secret between you and your mother, and he's a little bit excluded. Right. And no, and that's exactly, you know, what happened. It wasn't, you know, we had been, as often happens in divorce, I mean, it was really my mom, my brother and me, mm-hmm. you know, my f- father was in the orbiting. <laughs> he was there. Um, my stepfather was there, but we were sort of the the little unit. And, um, and then this secret shifted that. Of course, I feel like when anyone reads anyone's memoir, they kind of think, I know all about your life. And of course, you do know a lot about my life. But, you know, as you can imagine, our family kept a lot of secrets. And so I focused on one and I told that story. But, you know, there were others, certainly, and others that involved my brother. And I think the big problem, you know, is what I said before, when you keep secrets, you keep yourselves from being known. My brother and I were never sort of encouraged to be close. In some ways, we were played off a little bit Mm. against each other. And so we've never been terribly close is the long and short of it. I think, you know, on the upside, (laughs) 
we both managed not to marry our parents. Like, you know, we married really emotionally intelligent and warm people who are, you know, just my husband, his wife were wonderful. And I think even though he and I aren't close, um, we both have sort of gone on to have good lives. And what I'm really proud of is that our children are best friends. So, you know, we at least somehow haven't passed it on to the next generation, at least not yet, Knockwood. Do you have anger about your childhood? You know, not at this point, because I'm, you know, in that way, I, I'm at a really happy place in my life. Like I've, I've had a career I've loved. I ended up with a great man. I have, you know, children, I'm happy. Um, So, you know, people ask me if I regret or what I could change. And of course, you worry if you pull any one thread out the whole, you know, tapestry, right. So, no, I mean, and also you can't really imagine living another life. I told you earlier, um, you know, my my husband just has, uh, you know, the fairy book family of, you know, just gentle, kind, loving, apparently only good thoughted people. <laughs> and um, where do they hail from? Where, where, do, where is this magical <laughs> land of people? Well, they're on Cape Cod now, okay. but they they were raised in Kingston, New York. But they, I mean, like he tells stories about. 23-hour car drives to Florida from New York State with eight kids in the back as if it is a good thing. And I look at him and I'm just like, and he's like, don't you want to do that with the kids? And I'm like, no, not, you know, not if my life depended on it. Right. Um, but they just, you know, and even when they get together, it's always sort of laughter and a lot of sweet stories. And I, you know, it's, they're just, they're easygoing. I think that's really um, profound that you ended up and are happily married to someone who doesn't come from dysfunction. Me too. It's like shocking. Every day I kind of poke him and, you know, I, I used <laughs> to look, I used to not believe it. I thought I'm going to figure this out. But it's, uh, it is what it seems to be. And when you first, first met him, though, you were not interested, right? <laughs> Definitely. I was like, he is, you know, I just like, how would that work? Um, you know, his high degree of sort of function and sweet. I, I just thought it was too weird for him. I mean, he's, he's also from um, a Catholic upbringing and family. Uh, I was sort of <laughs> raised, my father's an atheist and my mother's sort of every five years goes to a, an Episcopalian, you know, something, but really nothing. And, um, you know, just the very different community growing up in a small town, big family. Um, it just seemed it seemed impossible to consider, except he kept sort of coming back. And just every time he showed up, he um, was doing the right thing. I mean, he was just there in a way that I'd never experienced someone before. So before the man <laughs> who comes from no dysfunction, you married and were briefly married to the son of the man that your mother was having an affair with, which Indeed is I was. fascinating to me, this wrinkle. <laughs> right. Um, what now, what do you make of, of all of that? What I make of it is um, someone who, who had some, had some pretty confusing childhood. I met Jack Souther on a family vacation after my stepfather had died and I have no question because some people sort of ask, like, do you really think you were in love? And da, da, da. I mean, I have no question that I fell 
very in love with him. He is a great guy. He is, you know, smart and funny and, you know, everything's nice about him. Um, what I do wonder about were the subconscious motivations of mm-hmm. either pleasing my mother or pleasing Ben Souther, who clearly also kind of was eager to see this happen somehow. And, um, you know, it just, uh, we, we started a relationship, uh, sort of in secret, ho ho. Um, I think we're the only ones who thought we were keeping it a secret <laughs> from anyone. We thought we were very clever. Um, and then, um, you know, once it came out, all the parents were quite pleased with the situation. Um, and then, you know, I moved out to California. Jack Souther was 10 years older than I was. And, you know, lived on a different coast. And what I'll say is surprising is just that I got married at the age that I did, because um, as you can tell from my family history, we were not, you know, I was not marriage minded. My father is this sort of anti-establishment, you know, lefty writer, like he was not, you know, trying to, I mean, no one was encouraging me to get Mm -hmm. married. It wasn't part of my plan. I was, you know, wanted to have an interesting career. I had a lot of things in my mind, but it never occurred to me, you know, at 23 that I would, you know, be planning a wedding, which in fact I was doing. And so in in that way, I just, I kind of wonder, I mean, I think it was re- really irresponsible of my mother never once to sort of say, hey, are you sure mm. about this? Like, are, you know, this is quite the coincidence, you know, <laughs> we're very happy, but you know, what's going on here? I mean, mm. because it was really a very blurry time in my life. Um, and then, of course, afterwards was when I really crashed. Um, you know, so if, if the first part of the book is all about getting involved and being involved in this you know, epic secret and, and burying the truth from everyone all the time, you know, there's a moment where there's the reckoning. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I went into a colossal depression in my mid 20s. I really was in trouble. You were Um, suicidal, right? uh, I, I was very briefly suicidal. And I actually think that was more the effect of the medication that I was put on. I mean, I hadn't felt suicidal in the depression. I for, certainly felt hopeless mm-hmm. and adrift and lost, but I, I hadn't contemplated that until the medication. So that at least is my thinking on that. But it was, it was, um, yeah. So it was from that moment of really trying to rebuild myself and figure out how I needed to live my life authentically and you know, not repeat these sort of intergenerational patterns, um, these very destructive patterns in my family. And that took a long time. Why do you think the depression hit you after you got married or at that moment? Um, You know, I think I probably, at that moment, both my stepfather and shortly after our marriage, my mother-in-law died. So my mother and Ben Souther were able to get together. Um, and I can't really tell you why this confluence of events all hit at this time, but I just, you know, I didn't realize I was in a depression immediately. Mm-hmm. You know, it's sort of one of these things that it it grows on you or you stumble in. It's a very murky, dark feeling. It's almost like um, 
all your senses are dulled. At least that's how I experienced it. It wasn't like I woke up sobbing in the morning. It was just this slow descent into- Like a lack of feeling. A lack of feeling. And it just went into this very dark place. And I think, you know, in hindsight, I, I think it was from being inauthentic, from, you know, not actually knowing who I was. I'd been living my life for my mother in a really unnatural, to an unnatural degree. Um, I was in the wrong city, doing the wrong career and living with the wrong person. And um, in part, once the secret came out, once uh, Lily had found out about it, I think that cracked something open in as much as it allowed me to also talk about it. So that's when I started therapy. And that's when I started talking to close friends and really unburdening myself. And then at the same time, I had this incredible second stepmother um, who was also weirdly in San Diego. My father and I both fell in love with people in San Diego. Um, (laughs) And she ran a small independent bookstore and she started pressing these wonderful books into my hands, just you know, great novels, collections of poetry, philosophy, whatever. And with her encouragement, I became, you know, just an avid reader. And I, you know, I was educated and I always read, but I hadn't read like with a hunger. Mm -hmm. And somehow the book she gave me, which, you know, I'm sure she intuited I was in trouble and she picked books carefully, but they were often with young female protagonists who were managing really complicated situations. And, you know, in that way that reading is such an empathetic act, you know, you get out of the bubble of your own experience and you're in someone else's experience. So it doesn't matter whether you're in Ethiopia or what religion or, you know, it just, it's so, um, it's so moving and it was so helpful to me. So all of those things converged and there were about three or four years when I was really struggling and digging my way out. What had you, before you realized you wanted to go in a literary direction, Mm -hmm. um, career-wise, what were you thinking you would do? I, well, I was very young and idealistic. I was going to save the world. So I was in, uh, my my first job was in local government in San Diego. I went on to get a master's degree in public policy. And I remember when I started that program, the director, who was just a kook, whoops, well, he was a kook, um, but he said the first day... um, you know, some of you will sort of go on to become politicians, and some of you will do this, and some of you will save the world this way, and then some of you will realize that this is not what you want to do. And I remember thinking, "Oh no, that's me!" <laughs> like I really, like I you knew, and, knew. And, and I and I was like, "Okay, I got a free ride here. I'll get through this program." But I, it it did. I already realized that I don't think I wanted. I didn't think I wanted to continue in in public policy forever. Mm-hmm. How come? Well, I think I'd you know. Literally, the stack of journals on my bedside table, which had always been these policy journals, was going down as the literary mm-hmm. journals were going up. And I just was becoming more and more enamored with the idea of um, working in literature somehow. And so then so then you moved to New York. Yes. And kind of started over. Yes. Um, Very and- much started over. <laughs> like it started from the bottom. Yeah. I, I literally left, you know, a nice house in Pacific Beach. I'd had a nice salary with a partner who had a nice salary. And I moved to a uh, studio apartment over a curry in the hurry in uh, Lexington in 28th. <laughs> when you look back on that time, do you remember it as 
hard, exciting, both? Um, First of all, I felt immediately better when I left um, in that way that, you know, I think nothing's lonelier than being in a marriage or being in a place where you don't feel understood or you feel, you know, so even though I was more alone in New York, I, I didn't experience loneliness and I was chasing a dream that I really wanted to chase. Um, so it was very exciting and I worked really hard, um, because I was sort of 10 years behind Mm -hmm. career wise. Um, but it went well and I loved it. I loved running the magazine that I started and then I became a book editor and, um, now I run a literary nonprofit, but I, I feel so lucky to have landed in this world that I, you know, is interesting to me every day. Remind me how the magazine came about. Um, well, so as I said, I was sort of started at the lowest rung. I was looking for an entry level position in publishing, um, which is a very apprenticeship driven mm-hmm. industry. And I started rather than, you know, as a fresh college graduate, like, you know, I was almost 30 and I was doing what everyone did, which was like an unpaid internship <laughs> at the Paris Review. And to make money, I um, had a job. I was a fact checker for a magazine, which I actually loved. And I had applied and gotten into the Radcliffe Publishing course, which I was going to go to over the summer. And then at some point, you know, sort of during this first year of being in New York and just kind of hearing the gossip, I'd heard on several occasions that Francis Coppola, the filmmaker, had tried to start a literary magazine on, you know, two or three times, and it just had never gotten off the ground, but this is something he really wanted to do. And I remember just thinking, yeah, that's what I want to do, too. (laughs) And I never do stuff like this, but I actually wrote him a letter. So I'd heard it from two or three different places. Um, I wrote him a letter that someone was able to get to him. And of course, I didn't hear back, right? No was this sh- a, an email or an actual letter? It was a letter. It was mm-hmm. old-fashioned. This was, you know, <laughs> 1995 or something. Um, I mean, email was existing, but it was, right. you know, with all those numbers at the end. Yes. <laughs> CompuServe 647. <laughs> right, right. right. Um, so I sent him that. I went off to the Radcliffe Publishing course. I came back to New York thinking, okay, I got to... I got to lower this lofty literary dream of mine. I was about to accept a job at one of those travel magazines like Fodor's or Frommer's. Mm-hmm. I can't remember what it was anymore, which would have been fine and fun, but not exactly literary. Um, and I got a call from him one night, late at night. And wow. just he, you know, he said, hey, it's Francis. And I said, Francis who? Um, <laughs> because, you know, I, it occurred to me that someone was pulling my leg, but I hadn't mm. told anyone because it was sort of embarrassing to uh-huh. sort of write a cold letter. And we started talking um, and just talking about short stories and what we loved about them and our philosophy of them. And he actually really loved that I wasn't interested in film and wasn't sort of, because he, his thought was if we, he had a, he had a theory that short stories were the best form with which to adapt for a Mm. movie. So he brought up all these examples like rear window started as a short story all about Eve and these great movies, because unlike when you, adapt a novel and you have to sort of cut out and condense, you know, you have a lot of freedom and liberties with short stories. So, but he didn't want a development person or anyone to do with the film industry. He wanted someone who was passionate about stories. And his belief was, if I bought and published excellent stories, he could option some that Mm. he thought, um, you know, captured something. I mean, that in the end didn't happen while I was there. um, But it was sort of the, the launching point of it. Right. What was working with him like? It was great. I mean, he, first of all, we lived 
you know, in two, di- you know, opposite sides of the country. I don't think the man ever slept. I would get emails, you know, just huge emailer. He was brilliant. He also gave me a lot of space. I mean, and I should add that, you know, nothing on my resume said I was the person to do this, right? And, you know, it was a huge, huge, huge learning curve how to, I didn't know. I mean, I had confidence in my literary taste, but how to how to buy tons of paper, who knew, how to find a designer, how to distribute a magazine, how to get advertising, how to, you know, it was just all new. So I was asking tons of questions. And it was very exciting that way. Uh, can I ask, do you remember what the gist of your letter was? I really can't other than, you know, acknowledging that he had started, I actually had even seen a prototype of the magazine. And just saying, because I knew that he liked um, plot-driven stories, which is definitely what I liked. I wasn't into too experimental sort of, you know, something about a pomegranate that was just beautiful writing, but didn't go anywhere. You know what I mean? So we both, I remember reading a little bit about him, but I actually didn't know that much about him. Like I hadn't followed every one of his films or done anything like that. And um but it was just sort of, you know, an enthusiastic lover of literature, you know, writing to someone who was also interested. Do you feel like you would do something like that now? I, it's so hard to say. I mean, yes, if there was something I was wanted to do, I tend to go for it. I mean, I I feel like I am not someone who's ever had this clean idea of the trajectory of my career, like, oh, well, in three years, I will get the next level thing. I think, for me, I've had a very lucky and interesting career, but I also think when I see an opportunity, I do just go for it. I mean, mm-hmm. I really get excited about things, and I've had jobs that I've just loved. And so you went from the magazine to then working as an um, acquisitions editor mm-hmm. at a book company, yes, a publisher. And then from there, did you go to the Aspen Institute? Yes. So um, I loved book publishing, but I have to say – not as much as Zoetrope and not as much as what I do now. And what I found, you know, Zoetrope was just such a win-win because, of course, you were working, discovering new voices. It was wonderful. And everyone everyone wanted to be in the magazine. You only had to create the brand once. They were excited about being in it. We won the National Magazine Award a couple times while I was running it. We've won it a couple times since. And it was just, it's just like a spectacular feeling, discovering. And now... um and like so many of the writers whose stories, I, the, I published their first stories, like David Benioff or, oh, wow. you know, I mean, just all sorts of people who went on to either have big books or big careers in other ways. Um, and so book publishing, I loved, but it was frankly, you know, much, much harder, um, much more a huge behemoth of an industry. So, you know, when you were acquiring a book, well, what was that author's sales track? And if you fell in love with someone who hadn't sold a ton of books before, I mean, just less pure, it was, it was less pure. And it also, you had to each book, I mean, so much magic had to happen. And you as an editor fell in love with these books and you wanted to, Mm -hmm. you know, blow wind in these sales. And it just, it was, it was difficult and more books don't work than work. And then with Aspen Words, um, so I run this literary nonprofit that's part of the Aspen Institute, and it, again, feels much more win-win. We have a huge writing conference. We have an author reading series. We have a residency program. We have a literary prize where we we award um, a large cash prize to a work of fiction with a, you know, that shines a spotlight on a social issue. 
and in each one of these situations, there are not a lot of, um, you know, there's just not a lot of downside. The authors want to come to Aspen. The the community wants to hear them. Um, we give out money for emerging writing fellows. It's just, it's fun. Mm-hmm. It's and fun. I'm not, I've heard of Aspen Institute, but mm-hmm. I'm not that familiar with it. Right. It's, it is a complicated thing to describe. It is a very large nonprofit um, that is a values based, and it, it's it's a, a it's it's an it's an organization that tries to cultivate leadership um, and sort of good citizenry. And but there are many many different programs within it. So there's something called business and society. There's you know. There's the Ideas Festival, which is a little bit like a TED conference where a lot of, uh, you know, thinkers and leaders come to talk about, you know, everything under these different tracks and themes. Um, they do incredible work. And Aspen Words is one of their programs and is their literary program. They have an arts program. They have all sorts of interesting programs that, that have events in Aspen, but also all over the country and, mm. and the world. And how did you, how did that come about? You know, once again, kind of stumbling along, I um, actually <laughs> did something that's not highly recommended, which is I left my job at um, at the publishing house where I worked before having another job. I I remember really growing weary of it, and um, and I, uh, you know, an agent submitted a book to me that I fell in love with, and I thought if I buy this book, I'll be here two more years because mm. you work with the author for a year and publishing a book takes a year. And so I like in a very impulsive way, um, you know, I, my husband knew I was thinking about doing this, but I went into my boss and I told her just that. I was like, uh, I love this book. And guess what? <laughs> you know, if I buy it, I'll be here. And I said, I, I don't have anything else. I'm happy to see through the rest of my books. But I, you know, I had some books coming out that spring that I wanted to support. Um, but I said I didn't want to keep acquiring books and I wanted to phase out. And then at the same time, I had actually been to Aspen Summer Words, which is their writing conference the summer before as an editor. And since this is a little bit of a leap, but when I ran the magazine, we also had a literary conference at Coppola's Resort in Belize. Um, and so I, I've been to quite a few literary conferences and I went to this one in Aspen, which just had so much potential and it was so great. And you could attract such fantastic writers, of course, and faculty and teachers just because of, you know, it's such a destination to get to. And, you know, there was money to support um, writers you know, with scholarships and other things. And it just, it was very appealing. So I'd been there that summer you know, with no no eyes on, you know, getting a job there. Um, but when I left publishing, um, the woman who was directing it had left and the interim director had stumbled across my resume from when I'd come there. And she called me and we got together for lunch in New York at some point in time. And I remember her and, you know, sort of saying, I'm really interested in you for this position of creative director. And I kept thinking like, that's just crazy. I'm not moving to, I mean, like uh, my whole thought bubble was about why I shouldn't have this mm. job. And then I was like, wait a second, I'm unemployed and someone's <laughs> interested in me. And like, they're inviting me out to Aspen to go talk to them. And then it just, it, what we ended up doing was um, 
having a partnership. So I had a executive director on the, we co-directed an, an executive director on the ground there and I was the creative director and that was wonderful. And then he ended up leaving. So I took over as the executive director. Um, and I have, you know, some, uh, just a great, great team out there who do wonderful work. How do you think having worked so closely with writers at the magazine and then as an editor affected your own writing process? I have a magazine background and worked as writer uh, initially and then switched to editor. And I know that I kind of, with my own writing, had have had to turn off that. Actually, I'm not that in touch with the editor part of me mm-hmm. anymore, but for a long time I was. And it was causing me to like stumble and rewrite. I don't think I could have written the book as an editor. I mean, I think that is such a, it is such a creative and involved job and you have to get so into other people's work and, and almost take on their persona because you, you don't want to change the work. You want the work to be better as the writer is. Refine it. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I'd say, you know, if there's an advice to anyone who wants to be a writer is read like your career depends on it because it does. So I think my career has really, um, been such a reading career, obviously in editing, I dove deep into structure and, and probably understood a lot intuitively. Like I I don't have an MFA as many writers do, but I just think I had a a different education that probably resulted in the, in the same body of knowledge. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it sort of all added up in a, in a lot of different ways, but it was an incredible education. Um, there's a moment in the book where you say that had you started with a different moment, the reader and yeah. my college professor who taught the self-conscious and he taught what was the class self-conscious fiction would have loved this moment yeah. <laughs> you say had you started in a different moment you know the reader would have sympathized more with your mother right. uh did you always know that you wanted to start where you started i always knew i was going to start with that night with the kiss i mean it was just the night that propelled my life in this other direction but, you know, I think she had those moments in her life. So what I, I think I meant by that line is, you know, had I started with this scene of a woman with her child dying in her arms, like, you would feel entirely different about Malabar throughout this book. So some part of me just wants to acknowledge, you know, that this is my story and my perspective. And, you know, it, you're only getting one one view. I mean, I'm trying to be very fair, but, you know, wherever you start, or I could have started with a poignant moment of my brothers or mm-hmm. something else. Yeah. So you're, before you were born, your mother had a taught, your mother and dad, your father, your parents, <laughs> <laughs> help her <laughs> parents, uh, had a toddler who choked mm-hmm. in the back seat. Yes. And, um, as someone with with a toddler, yes, but I, I think whether you or not you have a child, you can relate to the horror of that. How do you think growing up in the shadow of that grief affected you and the family? It's such a good question. I mean, you know, I only knew my parents as survivors of this um, this great tragedy. So of course, I have no idea who they were before this. And so I almost can't picture it. So I, I can't um, tell you how it changed them or affected them. I can only tell you sort of my own experience of it, which is I think, I think as a child who comes after a child who dies, you always wonder on some level, one, if your parents would have had you, if you would even be, mm. if if your existence didn't depend on that child dying, because I don't think my parents ever were going to have more than two children. 
But there's also just this, you know, there's this fundamental sense, which is absurd on some level. And I understand this, um, that they would have loved him more. I mean, they're just, this, you know, he was their firstborn, how, you know, like you were always going to be second to that. It's just impossible to compete with a ghost. And I don't actually believe it. And yet I feel it fully, if that makes sense. You know, yeah. I, I understand intellectually that, you know, you love people as much as you can love them. And it's not really um, sort of divvied up that way. But it's, you know, to a young mind, and you sort of are trying to figure out who this person is. And it wasn't a secret, you know, we were told, or we were aware of him, there were photos of him and, and his items. Um, but it also wasn't talked about. And you could tell that there was sadness associated. And I happened to have been born on his same birthday. So it was really complicated for me, because I just, um, you know, was always wondering if they were sad or missing him on my birthday or that type of thing. Did you ever see them grieving? I, sure. Occasionally, you know, throughout my life. And and oddly, more recently, you know, I've probably had more conversations with my mother about, about him in the last 20 years than I did the first 20 years of mm -hmm. talking to her about it. Um, but yeah, I don't think you ever sort of metabolize that kind of loss. I mean, mm -hmm. it's just with you. And yeah, the past is the past, but it's always there. It. I'm a little unclear on the timeline, but it does seem like at a certain point in your life, there were lots of deaths. Mm -hmm. Were they? I, I don't know if they were like, do you feel it? Was that? What am I trying to ask? What I'm trying to ask really is, do you, does your story involve a lot of grief? I mean, it definitely involves a lot of grief. I, I don't know that all of them for me personally are associated with the deaths, although, you know, all these things are just so intertwined. And, you know, to your having trouble with the, the timeline or sorting it out, I'll tell you the, the woman who's the writer director who's working on the script, she's really smart and very funny. Her name's Kelly Freeman Craig. And um, she at one point said, you know, she had to, she had to change the order of some of them just to make sense. And she said in the nicest way, your, your life is a little bit like a, a Mexican wedding. There are just too many beats going on. <laughs> and we just need to like, organize this a little bit. Um, but yeah, so there, there was space between those things. I mean, obviously, my brother died before I was born. My first stepfather had his strokes right before their marriage, so I was eight. Um, he died when I was probably 20. Uh, ben Souther's wife died when I was probably 24, 25. So there were, there were space between these events, but, you know, and probably all of our lives kind of tumble yeah. together like that. At, you know, I mean, there are clusters of these mm -hmm. things. Um, and you brought up the writer-director, this book is being turned into a movie. That's well, as much as anyone can be certain, you know, like <laughs> right. uh, you, you guys live out here, you tell me. I mean, I think you probably hear this story every day. Yes, it's going to be a movie. And then, you know, nothing happens. Um, it was optioned immediately, which was one of the more terrifying aspects, because, of course, I can control every word that is in the book. Um, but you have zero, um, you know, they they tell you, you're going to have some, I mean, they have nice terms for it. But in reality, when you sign it, you realize, yeah, they, they'll hear me, they'll listen when I'm upset, but that's all. Right. Um, and so I, you know, it was, it was a big decision to do that. And one I didn't feel sure of, and uh, actually, 
avoided in the beginning. And then my agent really thought it was the right thing to do. And, and once I started working or once Kelly Freeman Craig was associated with it, um, it really calmed my nerves because she's just very intelligent. She understood my desire for nuance and that it wasn't a black and white story at all. She did a, a film called The Edge of 17, which is sort of a oh, yeah. mother daughter. So very different, but I can tell she got it. And she also very recently or within the last year or something, after, you know, people have been trying to get the rights to this for 50 years, she got um, the rights to Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret. So oh, wow. I know. she, But she is, she has got this territory and she's, um, you know, she's written a beautiful script. And well, I mean, I think she's still working on it. I've seen a draft, but, mm-hmm. you know, and it's such a, it's such an unusual experience. You know, I, I don't know how screenwriters do their job, but for, you know, she has had to compress what would probably take eight hours to read into an hour and a half experience. And, you know, you don't really go 14 to late 40s easily. So, you know, you compress time and you compress geography and you hold the emotional truth of the story. And that's what she's managed to do. Um, so, and it, it actually is also easier when it's different from your own life. And, mm-hmm. and you know, it, I can sort of see the the truth of it. And it, yet it doesn't feel like my family because it's like, oh, I, w- she would ask me, well, what would you do if you lived on Cape Cod? Had you never left? And, you know, so we had to sort of think about all these different um, ways of being in a smaller universe. Are you happy with how the book is being received? I mean, it's being lauded. Um, but I guess what I'm wondering is, have you encountered any interpretations or things written about it where you're like, no, that's not what it was. That's not what I meant. Well, it's actually the hardest part of the whole thing, right? Because I know exactly the book I wrote, but you're going to have read a different book, and you're going to have read a different book, and everyone's going to read a book through their own lens. There's this wonderful Sylvia Plath line, and I will botch it, but, you know, interpretation is the right of the reader, but it always says more about the interpreter than what is being interpreted. Mm -hmm. So when people talk to me about the book, I mean, some people will be obsessed about one thing or another or feel like Malabar's fabulous or horrific. And, you know, you're just thinking, wow, this is one book. But whatever your lens that you're reading it through, your life paradigm, did you have a complicated relationship with a parent? Are you someone who asks themselves, you know, am I going to become my mother? You know, it all plays into you know, how you receive the book. Mm-hmm. But it it has been, I, I think what I wasn't expecting, you know, because I certainly didn't read this in mind, like this will help people. Um, but what, you know, so many people have come up to me, and even with very different lives and stories, and just said, I feel like you wrote this book for me. And it's been so helpful. And that's been incredible. I, I mean, bet. that's really lovely. Yeah. Um, all right. I think we have some questions that listeners sent in on Patreon. Patreon. I'm on Patreon, patreon.com slash Allison Rosen, and we have a little song. When we ask, they send them in. They're wondering how you have been. So thanks so much for answering these questions from our fans. Okay. Leanne Ward says, I'm looking forward to your interview with her. I was fascinated by her story when I heard it on the Family Secrets podcast. Maybe it was addressed in that podcast and I forgot, but how did her brother react to the revelation of the affair? And did it bother him that she had known about it all this time? Also, what does her family think of her telling this story? What was your relationship like with the person her mother had the affair with once they were married? 
Um, I'm sorry that the name escapes me right now. Final, oh, some of this we've covered, but finally, has her does her mother feel any regret for putting all of this on her? Do you want me to go through those one by one? <laughs> Just There's do it one by yeah. one. Let's do it one uh, by one. Okay. Um, so the brother territory we covered a little bit. A little bit, yeah. Um, how did he react to the revelation of the affair? And did it bother him that you'd known? Well, I don't know actually exactly when he found out, because he found out from someone other than my mother and me. And, um, you know... It, The truth is, I don't honestly know. I think given that we were a family of secret holders, I think, you know, he understood. And it wasn't like we had started from this place of being so tight and I betrayed him. It was just sort of like, oh, you did that. You know, I mean, it was... That said, I mean, this no question hurt him. I mean, he was left out and it. I think it was painful. And we covered this a bit too, but also what does her family think of her telling this story? Well, I think one of the things that sort of reading the headlines or hearing about it is there's this idea that I have outed anyone in this. And this affair was out in, you know, the public, <laughs> or at least out within the family circle, you know, 10 years into the affair, it was discovered and open. And, you know, since we've given other spoilers. I mean, my mother and Ben Souther ended up married and they live, you know, happily married for 20 years or so. So what this is, is an examination of my role and my desire not to pass this along. It's not so this, much... This being what? This being this sort of legacy of deception that just has existed in my family. It's sort of a, a reckoning. It's some part atonement, but it's, um, you know, I, I think anyone who thinks, you know, here, you know, oh, salaciously, she reveals her mother's affair. That's just not right. It's not a tell all, not at remotely. Uh, let's see. What was your relationship like with Ben um, once they were married? I mean, my relationship with Ben was always lovely. Um, I would say it's become harder more recently, and he's been gone six or seven years now, but it's been harder more recently as I've dived back in mostly because I'd always held my mother accountable. And then some part of me was like, well, wait a second. You know, yes, she was totally accountable and she's the one who was responsible for me. But hey, this other adult is like also okay with a 14-year-old being involved, is also okay sort of encouraging this other relationship. I mean, it it is a little mind-boggling that no adults were acting like adults in the situation. So I've I've had a harder time with him sort of, you know, in his absence. Um, But our relationship was, he was a really warm, fun guy, very physical, very affectionate. Um, So I, we always had a nice time. What do you chalk to the extent that you, you can, you know, surmise, like what do you chalk that up to that no adult realized that this wasn't really fair to you? Well, as I said, I think my mom's the only one who really had the obligation. I think, you know, in some ways, it was a different era. I, I don't, I don't chalk it up to something. I mean, I really think it was a failure. And yet I also feel like, how many of us st- would step into something like that? Because also, many of my mother's friends knew about it. And they never were like, hey, Malabar, really, you shouldn't be having Rennie involved in this. Uh, you know, you kind of don't butt in. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I don't know if I would butt in. I mean, I, I you know, I probably I would, <laughs> given my own history. But right. I think it's an uncomfortable 
place to sort of tell someone that they're parenting poorly. Has anyone mm. ever taken that? <laughs> no. <as> well? <laughs> <laughs> Generally not. Uh, and then does your mom feel any regret, do you think? Again, that's, you know, at this point, that's an impossible question to answer. Um, she, I would say overall, probably not. I mean, and that's just who she was. She could <laughs> behave badly or say, I, I remember having a talk with her on a bench outside her apartment in Cambridge years ago, maybe 10 years ago. And she she'd had said something, she was acknowledging that she'd said something unkind to one of the sweetest people in our family. And I was like, don't you ever feel terrible the next day? Like, do you just berate yourself afterwards? Because I can like, say something that I think someone might interpret as mean, even if I hadn't meant it that way. And I can go through that in my head. She was like, yeah, no, I really don't. And I remember wow. just thinking like, I wish I had just tiny bit of that. Um, but no, I don't, I, I don't think she had tons of regrets. I, I, maybe she did. Maybe she didn't, didn't talk about them. I don't think her generation did as much reflecting as, mm -hmm. you know, ours does, but. And then here is a, a more lighthearted fun one from Whitney C. <laughs> What's her favorite junk food? M Malabar's or mine? Yours. My favorite junk food. I'm gosh, I'm trying to be so healthy right now. Um, I mean, I would say I'm more savory than sweet. I don't, I honestly, I don't eat junk food. I mean, so I would lean like I would, my answer would have been something like cheese, um, mm -hmm. which doesn't quite qualify. But I think because my mother was always testing food, like we never had, we really just didn't have junk food in the house. Mm -hmm. There was no potato chips. There was no... Your mom was a... I don't know if we said oh it. Your my mom gosh. was a food writer. My mom was a food writer. She was an astonishing cook. The title of the book comes from the Wild fact game, that yeah. she was, you know, they were trying to come up with a reason or an excuse, a way to um, cultivate this, this friendship, to have reasons for them to get together. She was a fantastic cook who wrote cookbooks and had a food column. Ben, her lover, was an avid recreational hunter and fisherman. So voila, they decided to write the Wild Game cookbook. So they're sort of the double entendre. But Such a good title. Thank you. But we never, I, I literally think I didn't develop a taste for it. Like even now I can try a, you know, one of those orange Cheeto ball things and <laughs> just it looks good and it tastes terrible. Yeah. Do you cook? I do cook. I love to cook. I mean, I'm not Malabar. I, I don't have that level of talent, mm -hmm. but I actually, I think in that way of someone who's grown up with it, my father could cook too. I just, um, it's actually relaxing for me. I think some people find it stressful and awful to have to prepare a meal when they get home. I mean, I feel that way about laundry and other cleaning, but <laughs> cooking, you know, have a bad day, chop up something. It's good. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking about the book. I would encourage everyone to go out and get it. And I'll put a link in the episode summary. It's called Wild Game, My Mother, Her Lover, and Me by Adrian Brodeur. Did I get it right? You did. Okay. Close enough. I don't, oh, no. Say, you say it. <laughs> Adrian Brodeur. Brodeur. I don't know why. I am stumbling over it every time. It's okay. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Um, okay, so tell every... You have a website. I do. Tell everyone where you'd like them to go to find you. To find me, www.adrianbroder.com. Okay. And I'm also on Instagram and Facebook. And I'm on Twitter and Instagram as well, at Allison Rosen. Um, go to alisonrosen.com. Listen to my other podcast, Childish. Uh, if you'd like what you're hearing, download, subscribe, tell your friends, leave a comment. It helps out the show so much. Tony? 
Uh, I'm Tony at Tony Thaxton on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, my podcast, Bizarre Albums, every Tuesday. And the uh, Motion City Soundtrack Tour is coming up in January. And those are starting to sell out. So if you haven't gotten tickets, get them. Thank you so much. Listeners, thank you for listening. I love you. Goodbye. Hey, do you know about the Allison Rosen Show? We had a good time, but now we gotta go. Yeah, Allison Rosen.